The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, quit looking for C Omega in the vitamin store and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 241 with guests Nick Benton and Claudio Russo, recorded live Sunday, May 6th, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter, and now bringing the ASP.NET Masterclass on site for your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik, combining the best in Windows Forms and ASP.NET controls with first class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who's seriously thinking of synchronously syncing... Into an asynchronous sinkhole, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome to .NET Rocks. This is Carl. I'm your man for the next hour. Of course, Richard Campbell is over there in Vancouver, British Columbia. He's the man, too. Richard? Yes, sir. I'm also looking forward to, well, this is the week before TechEd, so pretty it soon is. i got to jump on a plane and fly across the country. And we'll be in Orlando again. Yes, twice in the first half of the year. That's almost past quota. You know, it's different. Orlando, Montreal. Orlando, Montreal. They're two totally different places. Very different places. I had a lot of fun in Montreal. You know, the funniest thing that happened in Montreal was we were sitting in the bar with a bunch of the speakers that were there. And uh, I don't know, the subject of really gross jokes or something like that came up. (laughs) And Scott Belware said, hey, I got an idea. Let's have a contest to see who can say the creepiest thing. And everybody just stared at him. And I said, you win. (laughs) (laughs) Well, everything's basically in order for TechEd now. Yeah. And uh, so I guess we could start telling people about some of the stuff we're doing. We are sort of going to be in the center of it all at TechEd. They have a virtual TechEd stage, which is uh, is in the vendor area. Well, it's in the main ballroom or the main... Uh, conference center room, which is that enormous room you could land airplanes in. That's I mean, right. It's insanely huge. And one part of that is all the sponsors, but then there's all the community stuff and, uh, I mean, all kinds of things. And we're right in the middle of all of that. All right. So we're going to be doing uh, several things on stage. We're going to put a few panels together, we think. 
Yes. We're going to do the 64-bit question contest where you can win some swag. Right. And we're going to do Speaker Idol. Speaker Idol. Yeah, I got my 12 contestants and my four judges all lined up. So uh, we're ready to go. We're going to do two heats on Tuesday, two heats on Wednesday, finals on Thursday. And the idea is you get five minutes to do your best presentation. And the judges, who are the judges going to be, Richard? The judges are going to be Stefan Forte. Awesome. Who is with us in Europe as well. So he's the experienced judge. He was awesome. Kate Gregory. Ugh. And Michelle LaRue Bustamante. Oh, and a fourth judge I can't name just yet. All right. Well, that should be very fun. And uh, I think you, we have 12 contestants. Are you going to take walk-ins too? We're talking about that. I think we're going to do the wild card thing again. So the idea here is if you think you can do this, you think you could do a five-minute talk and knock people dead, you can show up just before the heats and we'll take one extra presenter, one extra contestant. For the show. And as it turns out, in Barcelona, one of the wild cards made it all the way to the finals, right? That's true. Yeah. And you know what the grand prize is? Tell me. The only thing that would matter to somebody in a speaker idol, grand prize, win the whole thing, and you get a speaking slot with airfare, hotel, and admission covered for TechEd 2008. Wow. So this isn't just a contest for an Xbox. This is like your career. There you go. You could be finding the next uh, Dino Esposito, for example. It could be. Yeah. So if you're at TechEd, look us up. Things are going to be going on at that booth, we think, all throughout the week. So Absolutely. Look us up. All right. We have some emails here. Let's just get to them. And the first one is from uh, one of our friends in Norway, and this is from Inar Host. Hope I said that right, Inar. Uh, and he says, hello, good Americans. I loved the show on Spec Sharp. There was some real content in there. And now I see you're doing a show on polyphonic C sharp as well. I must have been a nice boy or something. Brilliant to see, <laughs> brilliant to see you shedding some light on these very interesting topics that make my brain hurt in just the right way. Nice. Man, uh, that should be a trademark slogan, right? <laughs> we'll make your brain hurt in just the right yeah, way. Yeah, we'll make your brain hurt in just the right way. I'm crossing my fingers that you'll be keeping the language track of shows going. How about doing something on Iron Python DLR type things? Maybe F Sharp too. Hmm. How about that? That's a good idea, Richard. I like that idea a lot. Me too. Oh, and congratulations on consistently coming up with great content and great guests, and in general, creating the best produced, best sounding podcast I know. Cheers from a good Norwegian, Inar. Well, you're welcome. And uh, if you keep listening, we'll keep making them. You bet. And uh, I guess I can admit, I've got John Lamb on the schedule, so we'll be talking some DLR in the next few weeks. We will. Stick around. But I'm not done yet. I'm going to get a couple more. I, I'm interested in this F-sharp thing, too. The whole thing is just fascinating. I'm me. just having a blast with the language angle. Let me read you an email. It's okay. called Open Source Full Circle. Hi, Carl and Richard. This is actually a follow-up to my email from August 2005, read on show 127 with Joel Polbar and Brad Abrams. Oh, yeah, I remember that email. That was an awesome email, dude. Woof. Woo, that was awesome. <laughs> Go ahead, Richard. <laughs> the email was titled Road Trip or How DNR Saved Me from Linux. Yep. Yes, DNR got me off the LAMP stack and onto ASP.NET, and now I am just finishing my first six-month contract where I helped migrate a reporting system from Python to ASP.NET. Yeah. 
but I just have to reflect on how important the open source and .NET community have been to my project. One, I received a ton of training from other users in the community through code camps and user groups. Two, I use the .NET Nuke application framework. It saves me a lot of time and has an incredible release cycle for new features. Yeah. Three, so many of the tools I am starting to use come from the community. And yes, I do use the PayPal button. <laughs> Open source needs some love, too. Yeah. The real kicker that I learned about is the open source subsonic data access layer from Rob Connery on one of the DNR shows. I have been playing with it and looking at using it with .NET Nuke. Well, I submitted a proposal for a talk on using subsonic at OpenForce 07 .NET Nuke conference, and it was accepted. The conference is at the same dates and venue as the Dev Connections conference in Las Vegas this November, so I'll see you there. Wow, that's great. That's cool. Congrats. Thanks for all the great content. It continues to help fuel my passion for .NET. The coverage is amazing, and I've made so many discoveries from your shows. P.S. Thanks to Julie Lerman, who introduced me to Mark Dunn and Rory Blythe at Mix. Where were you guys? Well, first of all, Julie is the ultimate networker. So thanks to Julie for putting a lot of these people to, in touch with each other. She's you just, bet. She's a walking network machine. Um, but we were originally going to go to Mix, but things came up in our schedule and we just couldn't make it. So we, you know, we're seriously regretting it. It, it, it turns out it sounds was like it was a awesome heck of a place. show. Yeah, yep. we missed a great show. By the way, that email's from Jim Bonney. Didn't you, haven't you met him before? Yeah, Jim Bonney, uh, he's from Stanford, Connecticut, which is a couple hours from here, believe it or not. Uh, you can drive two hours in Connecticut and still be in the state. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, he, he came up during a recording of Mondays once. Oh, okay. I believe. And, uh, if I'm remembering right, and he sat in and, and listened while we did the recording. I think we scared him away. Uh, that would scare me. Yeah, it would scare anybody, really. So, uh, okay, well, we have a couple of announcements and code camps and things, so let's crank up that code camp music. Woohoo, code camp music. All right, let's talk code camps. On June 23rd, the Raleigh Code Camp, and I got a new link for you at shrinkster.com slash P-E-B. Yeah, that's actually codecamp.org now. Right, we, uh, they they were uh, going right to the we were bringing you to the Trinug site, but now they have a specific site. Uh, also in Reading, in the UK, the Developer 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 Conference, which I just love that title, awesome name, yeah. And that's happening June thirtieth in Reading, England, and uh, I guess we should say the UK now. And give them the shrinkster. And the shrinkster is uh, shrinkster.com slash p eight zero. P80. Also, Greg Brill's New York tour is still going on. He's sucking up .NET Rocks uh, listeners and, and .NET experts left and right. The deal is he wants you to come to New York for a year, work in a really incredible, intensive industry and environment, a great environment, and you live rent-free in Manhattan for a year. How awesome is that? If you're interested, read about it at shrinkster.com slash KH6. All right, Richard, let's introduce our guests. Nick Benton is a researcher at Microsoft Research in Cambridge, England, working in the Programming Principles and Tools Group. His research ranges from proof theory and categorical logic through semantics of programming languages and static analyses to programming language design and compiler implementation. His thesis was on strictness analysis, and he's since worked on topics that include 
term calculi and categorical models for linear logic. And right now there's 100,000 .NET Rocks listeners going, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed listening to you say that. Shall I read the rest of it? Because <laughs> that was the easy part. It goes on and on. You, they, could, they could read that on the website. Okay, they, they can want. read that on. Nick has a degree in mathematics and a PhD in computer science, both from the University of Cambridge, and is a fellow commoner of Queen's College. Before joining Microsoft, he was an SERC research fellow, an RA on an Eau Esprit project, and senior research scientist at Persimmon IT Incorporated. Uh, Claudio Russo is a researcher in the Programming Principles and Tools Group at Microsoft Research Cambridge. Before joining MSR, he was responsible for the advanced module system of Moscow ML, a popular bytecode compiler for the functional language standard ML. At Microsoft, he co-developed SML.net, an optimizing standard ML compiler with full .NET interop extensions that is integrated into Visual Studio. Claudio then contributed to generics in the .NET 2.0 framework, extending verification to cope with type parameters. He implemented the join pattern concurrency constructs in C Omega, an extension of C Sharp with additional link-like features for manipulating XML and SQL. He has since used generics to provide join patterns in a language-neutral .NET library called Joins. Right now, Claudio is designing concurrency extensions for VB. He has a PhD in computer science from the University of Edinburgh, and is a firm believer in typed, preferably functional, programming. Wow. I need a nap now, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's your day over. You should have said give it a short. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show, guys. Hi. Hi. You guys do some serious stuff here. I mean, I don't know how if you're supposed to respond to that or not, but... Yeah, that's some some very archaic, uh, you know, as opposed to the regular stuff that we talk about, archaic stuff. Yeah, well, this is, this is research, so yeah. <laughs> Richard's on a research kick, I think, you know. Well, He's... you know, I've been digging into issues around language and finding all this cool stuff. Seriously. And I know we're not so going to really dig into C Omega per se, and we're, we're going after more of this join theory stuff, but... I'm kind of interested how you consider, you know, C Omega an extension language. It sounds more like the end of the language. Well, that's that's what Omega means, right? Yeah, that's right. So this was this was a we have several silly names, but by the C Omega when we got the concurrency stuff that we're talking about today and the uh, the data access stuff, which was kind of a precursor to Link, and um, we kind of thought we've just got everything in here. Um, <laughs> so you're this, finished. This is, so yeah, we were thinking about names, and we called, we thought, oh, we should call it C Itch and Sync or something like that. And uh, uh, I, I had this uh, poster, in fact, for "Pimp My Language," with a kind of copy of the MTV show. Um, I love it. It's kind of like the end all, be all, right? That's of right. C. That was the idea. So you have C plus plus, which is the next, you know, iter right. operator. Well, and this, this reminds it. me of the late 80s with the when object orientation sort of surfaced and we had this flurry of languages the small talks and prologues and modulas and so forth and now it's like we've had a resurgence of this it's just that it's all c sharp with extensions that's right yeah and um, c sharp c sharp's gathered a lot of stuff over the years now what is uh i guess we're going to be talking mostly about polyphonic c sharp yeah this is something that you guys have developed what is this all about uh, so this is about concurrency, and it's a project that goes back ooh, a long way. Um, so the idea was back in 2000, I think. Uh, 
Luca Cardelli, who is the leader of our group over here in Cambridge, had this idea that um, that a piece of theory, piece of theory that was developed by a couple of people who are also in our group, in fact, Georges Gontier and Cedric Fournay, uh, it was a, it was a, a mathematical model of communicating systems. Um, and a couple of people had taken the idea from this mathematical model and built programming languages out of it. But they'd taken functional programming languages of the sort that programming language researchers like to use, and uh, they built some prototypes. And Luca had this idea that actually this, this, this model of concurrency would work well with objects. So, yeah, he came in one morning in May and said, um, let's, let's see if we can work out how to take this joint calculus model of concurrency and uh, stick it into a language like C-sharp. Now, I guess you could simplify this by saying that when you make a method, uh, you define it as a synchronous method or an asynchronous method, right? But, I mean, it, it's much more than that, isn't it? Yeah. So, uh, so let's see. Uh, the basic, so the basic idea is uh, we're interested in concurrent programming, and back there we were interested in the kind of concurrency that you get from distributed uh, applications in particular. Mm. So it's kind of obvious that you can't program applications that run, uh, you know, over the over the internet across the world, taking synchronous RPC as right. your primitive. Um, you don't uh, you don't want to send a message and then hang around whilst a, a reply comes from the other side of the world. Yeah. So you have to move to a, an asynchronous model of concurrency. So you're going to base things on message passing, and it's going to be asynchronous, one way, fire and forget messages. So then when you do that, you realize that you have to spawn more threads to deal with the messages that are going to come back at some point in the future. Um, so you end up with more concurrency. So you've got concurrency because you're running multiple machines, and you've got con- concurrency on each of those machines because you've got lots of threads hanging around waiting for messages to, to come in. Um, and we thought we'd, uh, we'd try and make a language that built that kind of communication in. Um, so you tried to encapsulate threading in the language in a well, yeah, much so higher level way. That's right. We take one-way messaging as a primitive, and you do that by um, allowing yourself to have asynchronous methods. So uh, an asynchronous method is something that, when you call it, um, it returns to the caller immediately and never returns a value. So like, think of it like a void method that doesn't return any, uh, that doesn't return any value and that, um, that comes back immediately. It never blocks the caller. And an ordinary method, the sort that we know and love, where you call it and the caller hangs around until the method executes and the value comes back is, is a synchronous method. So uh, is this any more than just abstracting delegates and... Uh, all right. So, so yeah, so synchronous, synchronous and asynchronous stuff we already have in C-sharp, but there's a slight difference uh, in that in uh, .NET languages in general, the, uh, the way you deal with asynchronous methods is that the caller decides to make an asynchronous call, whereas here it's the defined method, which is defined to always be asynchronous. Is there some but, kind of way that you can provide a callback mechanism? Yeah, that? yeah, we'll get, yeah, we, yeah, we'll get, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but, but so, so the, so the basic thing is, yeah, you've got synchronous and asynchronous messages methods, and that's that's easy. But the thing that's really novel is how you actually define the code that gets run when you call these things. So normally. Uh, you call a particular method on an object, and there's one piece of code that runs. Okay, so there's a one-to-one correspondence between the bodies of methods and, if you like, the the signatures of the methods. Um, so what Polyphonic C Sharp does, which it borrows from the Join Calculus, is this idea that you associate a body of code 
to be executed, not with a single method, but with a pattern of methods. So you say, here's a piece of code that I want to run when all of the following methods have been called on this object. Okay, so there's okay. some combination of synchronous methods and asynchronous methods, and you say, when all of these have been called, then this piece of code can run. And you can have the same method appearing in multiple patterns. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. So uh, I sort of liken that to a uh, 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 an event, you know, something that will like a something not not an event like a delegate calls an event, but a threading event, something that gets set and and you wait for it. That's they call right. it a wait handle. That's right. So the so the idea is you can write you can write these patterns that say when the following combination of events have happened, do this, and when some other combination of events have happened, do that. Um, huh. So. Um, so the way it works is when you when you call an asynchronous method on something, um, it goes in and the might, that might cause a pattern to match, um, in which case the pattern will run. Uh, if it doesn't cause a pattern to match, then inside the object, the code that gets spat out by our compiler, um, will queue the fact that an asynchronous call has been made on this object until some later time when the pattern matches. Okay. And so do you use that to provide return values and things like that if you're calling a function asynchronously? Ah, well, no, no, no. So if you're calling... So an asynchronous call... I'm getting blocks. ahead of... I'm getting ahead of... Yeah, well, I'm so an asynchronous, an asynchronous call never blocks the caller, okay? So, so it can't possibly return a result. Okay, so those are always like void. That's a one-way message. Oh, so I if see. you want to do it... If you want to do asynchronous RPC, then there's a pattern which is a bit more complicated because, I mean, it's, it's kind of like... Um, if I'm talking to you on the telephone right now, then you ask a question, and I reply to it immediately, uh, and you kind of hang around waiting for my answer. All right? So that's mm. synchronous, because mm. we're, we're kind of fairly tightly coupled. But if you send me a letter about something, um, then you're going to go off and do, do some other stuff in the meanwhile, sure. and then I'm going to send a letter back to you with a response. Sure, so it's more like later. a service-oriented approach. That's right. And it's... Um, the pattern there is, because you're going to be doing so much other stuff, you've got to send me a letter with the question, and it's also got your address on it, which is where I should send my reply. And it's probably also got some correlation token if it's a business-oriented thing, and you, you probably say, you know, re your account number 3348 or whatever, and, and then I include that token in my response to you so you know what the reply correlates with. So that's the pattern of asynchronous calls, is that you, you make a one-way, a one-way call, um, including in that as one of the arguments an address of some form uh, where the uh, where the service should should send its response when it gets one at some time in the future so that place to send yeah that's not unlike calling a delegate asynchronously where you that's provide right. a call, that's exactly the call yeah that's yeah. right that's right the call but the callback is the is the, is the return address this is what we call uh, it's actually continuation passing style okay. is the uh, is the language theoretician's name for that <laughs> so where do we get the term join calculus from well, so this comes from the fact that the original model was in a, a calculus. So we you know, programming language researchers tend to kind of uh, distill programming language features down to their absolute minimum. So, so the, the thing that we work with for sequential computation, for example, is a thing called the lambda calculus, which is a tiny language with just kind of three productions in its grammar and one reduction rule. And we study this thing intently. All kinds of things like types and concurrency and all the rest of it all get studied in this incredibly minimalistic calculus. 
Um, and the joint calculus was the, the kind of concur- concurrent one of these things, which, again, has an incredibly small syntax. And, it's, you know, it's, it's theoretically Turing powerful, but you wouldn't want to program in it. But you can understand the basic issues there and proof theorems there, and then you scale the thing up. And so we took, we took those, um, those theoretical ideas and, and um, moved them across into a realistic programming language by doing polyphonic C-sharp. But it's a, it's a calculus because it's, it's got a formal grammar and it's got some equations on it. Right. Um, now, other than the fact that you added like a async uh, keyword, is there is it C sharp? I mean, is it is it C sharp with an extension, or is it a totally it's a different? Strict, set? It's, a, it's a strict no, no. It's a strict extension of C sharp. So the the um, so the there's two, there's two things. So as I say, the async keyword is the easy part. Uh-huh. Uh, the thing that's magic is the bit where you define these patterns. I see. Um, so you join these pat you define these patterns where you have something that looks like a a method declaration, but it's got it's got a body of code. But then up at the top, it's got more than one method header separated by an ampersand. So, so there's async and there's ampersand, and ampersand is the smart bit. That's the bit that says run this code only when all these things have happened. I see. And you call that a chord? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, more cheesy names, I'm afraid. But. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's it's musical and it's lots of notes happening at once. So right. It, no, no, it it makes sense to me. I mean, and anybody who's done anything with MIDI or you know, instruments, electronic instruments knows what that's all about. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's a chord or a join pattern. Yeah. So is this uh, something that we can use today? Can we download this and use it? Uh, yes. So you can download a prototype of this. So what happened was we did this, we did this work uh, sort of early 2000s and wrote academic papers on it and so forth. Uh, and we, we built a couple of uh, toy implementations ourselves. One was a modification of the, the real kind of C++ implemented C-sharp compiler, and that wasn't something we could release. And, uh, and I built a kind of toy implementation in ML, uh, which was far too unstable to release. Uh, and then a bit later, sometime around about 2003, uh, we sort of felt we should have something people could play with. So we joined forces with another... Uh, project which was extending C sharp, which was then called Zen or X sharp, which was a project on adding uh, relational and XML data operations to uh, to C sharp. Kind of a precursor to link work. Yeah, it does that's sound right. like yeah. something linkish. That's right. So, so what we did was we, we 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 joined forces with them, and they'd already got a load of people working on a uh, on their modified C sharp compiler. Um, so, so we ended up take, taking the stuff that they'd done on data access and the stuff that we'd done on concurrency and putting them all together into one language, which was the language that we called C-Omega. Um, and so that is something that you can download, and that's a, there's a link somewhere on there. Okay, so C-Omega is C-sharp with your extensions plus yeah. this other stuff, this data that's stuff. That's right, that's yeah. right. So it's got concurrency extensions and it's got relational database stuff and XML stuff. Um, and there's still extensions to the... Regular old C sharp. This is a replacement right. for the language. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. All right. So, are you ready for the big news? Telerik is taking the wraps off four new product updates: Rad controls for ASP.NET, Rad controls for WinForms, the first official version of the Telerik reporting tool, and a brand new suite codenamed Rad Controls Prometheus. And you guys think I don't sleep? Telerik's tools have always been great, but I think this time they've outdone themselves. Well, here are the details. Prometheus is built on top of Microsoft ASP.NET Ajax, and it'll become the successor of RAD controls for ASP.NET. 
Just as ASP.NET Ajax will be the future of ASP.NET, RAD Control's Prometheus represents the future direction of all new Telerik development tools. This new suite of controls will also pave the way for seamless integration with Microsoft Silverlight, formerly WPFE. The WinForm suite aims for the stars with powerful new grid, chart, and tree view controls. For me, it seems like a major player on the WinForms market. Another intriguing addition to Telerik's portfolio this spring is Telerik Reporting. The product introduces a new level of development experience, which Telerik collectively calls easeability, a naturally intuitive mouse-only approach to generating Windows, Web, and PDF reports. And if that's not enough, go to www.telerik.com to check out what's new with Telerik's renowned RAD controls for ASP.NET. Now, um, let's just hammer uh, in a little bit uh, deeper what the difference is when you're programming concurrent, uh, you know, multi-threaded applications with, you know, just let's say delegates or even thread objects and and that kind of stuff with, uh, you know, with with uh, polyphonic C sharp or C omega. The difference, uh, as you said before, right off the bat, is that your code defines the synchronousness or asynchronousness of it, yep. whereas the caller is it's up to the caller in regular old C sharp. But beyond yeah. that, I mean, you get benefits of uh, being able to – is there less kind of outside poking that has to happen because of that? Do you know what yes. I mean? So, so, I mean, if you think about what you do in, uh, in, in .NET programming sort of classically, you've got, you've got two kinds of concurrency going on. You've got, you've got the intermachine concurrency, the messaging stuff. Uh, which you're dealing with using all the sort of the async support that's in the libraries. And then you've got the concurrency that's on a single machine, which is, you know, traditional good old threads and locks programming. And and for that, you've got two kinds of things. So the first thing is sort of simple mutual exclusion, which is what you get by, uh, by you know, having synchronized methods. And then right. slightly more sophisticated, you've got the event-based stuff where you do where you do wait and pulse and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so what Siemiga gives you is something that lets you unify all those all those things. So there's one model of computation that deals both with the sort of with the mutual exclusion and it deals with the uh, the event based uh, sort of notification and wake up uh, stuff on a single machine, and uh-huh. it deals with coordinating messages going between machines, all with all with one model. Um, and one of the big differences from the lock based view of the world is that. Uh, the synchronization is much more apparent in your code. It's, um, I mean, declarative is a word that gets thrown around a lot, but, sure. um, but you know, this is, this is declarative. If you actually look at some of the code samples, and it's kind of difficult to explain this on the radio, but um, if you look at some of the code samples in the papers or on the website, um, you, you can see pretty clearly the way that um, all the synchronization behavior is, is actually explicit in the code. It says, when the following condition happens, this and this and this and this, then this is the code that gets to run. Um, and it actually worked out better than we thought, because uh, we were we were initially very much focusing on this uh, uh, distributed messaging. Uh, but it turns out that as a replacement for kind of traditional threads and locks, just on a single machine, it now works you, extremely Yeah, when you nicely. say it's a replacement for traditional threads and locks, you don't have to do any locking uh, outside well, I mean, the code. You, are, you you do. I mean, obviously, you have to you do some synchronization, but you don't you don't use lock anymore, right? Okay. Uh, so our design is constrained by the fact that. Uh, we were doing it to C sharp, and we have to 
coexist right. with things that use that model. But, uh, but you wouldn't explicitly use lock statements as well as the polyphonic C-sharp constructs. Of course, the way it actually works is the stuff that, that we give you gets compiled down into calls to threads and locks because that's, that's sure. the way the implementation works. Um, but no, there's, there's no locking beyond the synchronization that you, uh, you make explicit in your And code. the locking is at the method level only, right? Uh, it's actually, well, it's smaller than the last fact. Yeah, so, um, so we actually only take locks really briefly uh, whilst, it's, whilst the system's deciding whether or not a pattern fires. Uh-huh. So there aren't a, so if you want if you want to program synchronization to keep keep things apart then you you do that using using these messages and um, the actual lock on the on the queues is uh, underneath so it's uh, handled it's smartly taken, it's not yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's 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 pretty efficient um, and you get um, you get very targeted wake ups generated as well so wow. um, so it tends to, if you if you have code that uh, kind of wakes up different threads according to different conditions, then we'll tend to produce code that runs uh, as well, if not better, than what you'd have written by hand if you, uh, if you knew what you were doing. Um, of course, I mean, since it compiles to use of threads and locks and so forth, obviously, if you tried really hard, you could always, um, you could always generate such good performance. But we, we have much more targeted wake-up. So if you have lots of... So if you have... Imagine you've got some producer-consumer setup, then uh, you, tend to, you tend to find yourself writing pulse all, which will wake lots of things up, whereas the code that we generate wakes up Kind of the appropriate threads, right? Now, Claudio, yeah, uh, you're designing these uh, extensions for VB as well. It's kind of funny that uh, that they just one set of extensions doesn't work in all languages. Uh, well, it's not so much that. Is um, um, so step back a bit. Like what happened after C Amiga and, and Polyphonic C Sharp is that um, generics came along. And with generics, it was actually possible to implement joint patterns as a library rather than uh, by extending a compiler. Ah. Okay, so sure. the idea is, I mean, func- functional programmers have been doing this for years, right? They've, they've got polymorphism and, and first-class functions, and they've used these to, to like, define little domain-specific languages embedded within the host programming language. Right. And now that C-sharp and VB both have these features... Uh, we can use the same technique using delegates and generics to embed joint patterns. I see. So you're rewriting the implementation so that it works across all .NET languages. That's probably uh, Yeah, that was the idea. I mean, actually, it started out as an exercise in generic programming. Basically, I want to show that you can use generics for more than just writing collections. Yeah. Right? And then it just kind of evolved, and then I thought, well, actually, this is kind of useful, right, because it's compiler-independent and people can experiment with it. So I released a library so that people play with it. And the, the implementation technique is, is very similar to what is in um, C Amiga and Polyphonic C Sharp. So I use the same kind of um, scheduling logic that, that Nick and Luca and Cedric have proposed. Um, but it's just got some extra directions, so you do this all at runtime. Wow. So then after I had that, then I thought, well, actually, this would make a very easy um, runtime library for uh, a compiler targeting. Um, uh, trying to for for an extension of another language, I wanted to to do join patterns. And um, Eric Meyer, who's of the VB, sure, Link fame, VB right, was, was kind of encouraged me to want to prototype something for for VB. And so, just as a research project, I've been doing this, and, and it turns out that VB it's, it's actually it's quite a nice fit because um, unlike C sharp, VB has a syntax for declarative event handling, right? Right. So in VB, you declare. Uh, your events, like for, I don't know, button clicked or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, 
when you declare an ordinary method, you can qualify it and say, well, this method is going to handle uh, this set of events. Right. Right? And that's, yep. that's been declaratively in the code. So you can just look at the, the method, you know immediately which events it's handling. Use the handles class. Okay. Yeah. That's right. So I looked at that and I thought, well, that's actually kind of similar to a joint pattern, right? But it's it's not quite right because it, the, the handles clause is telling you, well, I'm going to handle any of these events coming in independently. Mm. But a joint pattern is telling you, oh, uh, you know, I'm going to handle all of these events coming in at the same time mm. and otherwise I won't run. Hmm. Okay? Yeah. And you can come up with a design which is almost a dual of, of the, the event-based system and actually looks quite nice and interacts quite well with the event-based programming used like in GUI programming and stuff. So we're working on that. This is called the Joins Concurrency Library? Is this what you're talking about? Uh, so I was talking about the Joins Concurrency Library before, and then I've been using the Joins Concurrency Library as a runtime library for an extension of VB with joint patterns. I see. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at your your page, uh, and you shrinks it for us, shrinks.com slash ON1, uh, which is the Joins Concurrency Library. That code is C-sharp. That's um, C-sharp, yeah. But, it's, but you could write the same thing in VB if you wanted yeah, to. Yeah, it's, it's totally agnostic stuff. This is not C-sharp specific. Right. You could actually create all these elements and, and, and go to it. The syntax is interesting. I mean, obviously, join now the, it's a join library. You're just calling to it and saying, all right, initialize these items and compare them, and if so, then return. Yes. And as a library, you're, using, uh, you're not using keywords, so you must be using what, uh, uh, just decla- declarations? What do you call this? I'm using uh, delegates, actually. So delegates. Use, uh, generic delegates. So the idea is that the, the thing that you defined as asynchronous and synchronous methods in C Omega now get represented as, as uh, delegates huh. in C Sharp. Okay, so the first-class functions, essentially, first-class methods. Wow. Right? And so if you want to send a message, all you do is invoke a delegate, passing the argument. If you want to wait for wait on a request on a synchronous channel, you just invoke the delegate and wait for a return value to come back. Now, this seems like something that either works or it doesn't work. I mean, it's, it's, it's in beta, right? Uh, well, you can download it. I mean, it kind of works. Okay. My, my question is, Is are we going to see this eventually in the languages, in .NET languages? You um, think? I don't know. That depends on the product teams. I mean, it's not really up to us to decide what sure. goes in. Um, one of the reasons I've been prototyping this for VB is just so they can play with it and, and see what it would look like. And one of the reasons I put the show together is that I wanted more people to see this because the best chance for it to appear in the language is if a bunch of people are using it and loving it. Sure, that's sure. Right. Download <laughs> it and give, give us your feedback. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's, that's the way it works. So research connectors are stalking horse that way. Yeah, we, we, can, <laughs> we can create demand. Uh, what, what, are they, what, have, what do the teams think of it so far? I mean, have you gotten through to anybody? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. People, people like it. So, I mean, so, so internally there's been a bit of, uh, a bit of take up. So things like the, um, the Sing Sharp uh, variant of C Sharp, which is being used in programming the singularity Sing sharp, system. you said. Yeah, so the, you know, you've heard of singularity. This is a it's a research project in Redmond on building a uh, an operating system in C sharp, roughly speaking. Um, oh, I thought we were talking Star Trek. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, there, there, there is a Star Trek theme in MSRA. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. So they so they have a they have a language the extension of C sharp with lots of things that they're programming that operating system in, and that's got join like patterns in, uh. and uh, 
there's a thing in the robotics studio called the Common Concurrency Runtime, ah. which is another group in Microsoft Redmond, and they took some of the, the joiny ideas in the way that they, they designed those things. So, I mean, some, sometimes, you know, the stuff the stuff we do kind of can, can make it out directly like it did with generics, and then sometimes, you know, we kind of go a bit far and we do a, a slightly... Um, a slightly over-the-top prototype, and then... Right, and you do a demo, and the eyes glaze yeah. over, and they rock back and forth, the heads yeah, are and nodding, they'll and they go, take, oh, okay. They'll take, they'll take, you know, 10% of what we what we right. suggested. Um, yeah. So, but so, and just to tie this together, the, the Singularity Operating System, which is being developed in Sing-Sharp, which hmm. is actually an extension of Spec-Sharp, oh. which is Rust and Lino's thing we interviewed earlier Okay, on. now it's all yeah, making that's sense. Right, yeah. That's right, yeah, yeah. So they, they have some very nice stuff. In fact, they have... Um, they, they also have a kind of message-based model for the, the operating system for their software isolation. And they have something very nice on there, which is uh, they have contracts on there. So um, you, can, uh, you can express what, uh, what kinds of messages and what sequences of messages should be, should be passed along the channels, uh, which is a, a very nice thing to be able to check. And for an operating system, I mean, at the simplest level, just think buffer overflow proof operating system. Mm-hmm. That's right. We should we should have had one some time ago, but <laughs> that's what Bertrand Meyer kept saying. But the other thing they want to do is they want to get rid of the um, um, memory protection, yeah. right? uh, using type safety. You know, I can't. I, I'm looking through the samples here of the uh, Joins Concurrency Library, and I can't help but notice the Dining Philosophers sample. And there must be some sort of inside thing there that that I don't know about. What's that all about? That's a classic. Um, Concurrent programming exercise. It's what you give to students. Um, so uh, if you've not come across it before, it's uh, it's sort of you know my first concurrency problem. Okay. Uh, and it goes that you have uh, you have a bunch of philosophers who are sitting around a circular table, and they have chopsticks between them. So say five philosophers and five chopsticks, and they each need two chopsticks to eat from the bowl in the middle of the table. And they kind of go through a cycle of thinking for a while, and then deciding they're hungry, and they try and pick up the two chopsticks, the one on the left and the one on the right. And um, if you uh, if you try and simulate this, and uh, you you do the obvious thing, and each philosopher kind of thinks for a while, gets hungry, then he goes and tries to pick up his left chopstick and tries to pick up his right chopstick, then you easily get deadlock. So every philosopher uh-huh. suddenly gets hungry at the same time. They all pick up the left chopstick, and then they all block, waiting forever for the guy on the other side to put down his one, which he'll never do because he never gets to eat, and they all starve. <laughs> so. So there are lots of solutions That's to this. Cool. You can kind of vary the order in which they pick up their chopsticks, or you can uh, you can arrange that only four of the five are allowed to be at the table at any one time, so there's always one space uh, or something like that. So if you do anything in concurrency, you have to implement the dining philosophers. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, one of the first demos we did for this was uh, was the dining philosophers demo. But it's it's marginally more interesting than usual because usually these things print. Uh, you know, philosopher three is eating and things like that on the console. <laughs> so we we of course had to make it run graphically, uh, and then there's so there's some use of the join calculus uh, concurrency primitives in uh, actually programming the animation for, for for this as well. So there's there's more concurrency going on. Uh, is this more or less problem. fun than the Santa sample? Uh, the Santa sample is a harder problem, but. Uh, doesn't have pretty pictures, so it's probably more fun. Yeah, yeah. No chance of seeing Socrates eating chop suey. <laughs> so it'd be a nice exercise for all the listeners out there. <laughs> yeah, it would be. <laughs> animate the Santa sample. Well, what that, is the Santa right. sample anyway? 
Oh, so this was another this was another sort of thing. Uh, this was actually what I got when I I was just getting on a plane to Redmond, and uh, and I thought, oh, I better do some work on the plane, and I googled for concurrent programming problem. Uh, sorry, I MSN searched um, <laughs> <laughs> for concurrent programming problem um, <clears throat> just before I got on the plane, and this this uh, this, this paper came up. Um, with the Santa Claus problem, uh, which is a slightly a slightly more challenging problem, and it was it had been used as a, an exercise in comparing, in fact, uh, Java with Ada. So Ada is one of the few languages which has sensible concurrency primitives. They're quite complicated, but uh, they thought about it quite hard. Um, and uh, yeah, so so that one. Oh, I forget the I forget the gory description actually. Um, but uh, but roughly speaking, it has it has Santa helping his elves with their Toy research and um, harnessing his reindeer and flying off, and it's it's a complicated collection of conditions that you have to orchestrate, um, and it's uh, oh, good it, enough. it's it's hard enough that when most people sit down and say, "Look, this is my first attempt at solving this," uh, it's actually wrong. Uh, so um, so you have to think quite hard. And uh, yeah, that was one that I never published as a proper paper, but lots of people have read, and and now it's become that's almost become a popular uh, another sort of well known example because. If you if you look on the web, you can find lots of examples of the Santa problem coded up in all sorts of concurrent programming languages now. Pascal as well, right? That's right. Yeah. You guys have too much fun with this, I think. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, it's very difficult when you do programming languages research to make it look, you know, sexy and appealing. Uh, we're always envious of people who do things where there's there's natural, you know, uses of graphics and sound and this kind of stuff. So so we try very hard to come up with. Uh, Cool demos. I imagine your family and your partners don't ask you how your day at work was when you come home for dinner. Uh, they learn. Yeah, yeah. So it's a risky question. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. He might answer. Don't do it. <laughs> well, beyond uh, C Omega, is there? Uh, tell us what your what your current passion is at Microsoft Research. Current passion. So my current passion is actually doing. Uh, completely formal machine formalized proofs about machine code programs. So I'm and very keen on. Is... So I'm I'm very keen on trying to work out uh, things things relating to compiler correctness. So if you actually take a, a high level programming language and you compile it down to machine code, uh, I want to be able to write down what the specifications, the behavioral specifications of the code that come out of the compiler are. So okay. that you know how to how you might link code written in different languages together, uh, and um, how you might even optimize the machine code, uh, if you like. So obviously, you know, kind of most transformations on machine code don't preserve the behavior of machine code, but they might preserve the behavior of machine code uh, that was assumed to come from a high-level language. So I've been having a lot of fun, not just doing the doing the maths of that, but doing it in a using a what's called a theorem prover. So. Yeah, it's a, it was a proof tool, and it's an interesting problem. Of course, it, it relates to what you've been doing, because here you are putting extensions on an abstract language uh, that's a, you know abstraction over a framework that's an abstraction over top of machine code. You're getting far enough away that you start to worry that what I'm making here is crap. Well, yeah, I, 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 that's not quite the way I'd put it. <laughs> um, but, <clears throat> 
but it, I mean, no, no. I mean, I have, the, the, the big picture is, you know, we, we, we have to have kind of two, two responsibilities. One is, one is we raise the level of abstraction for programmers right. to make it easier for them to, to write stuff that, that works and, um, and that's secure and all the rest of it. But every time we put layers of abstraction on top, we're causing uh, potentially inefficiencies. Yes. So, uh, so the that's other a polite way of putting it. Yeah, quite. So the other right. thing we have to do is work on making stuff, you know, making compilers smarter and so forth. Um, and yeah, that's that's my other interest. So, so at one level, I'm interested in languages, but at the other, I'm interested in actual the gory details of optimizing compilation. And um, and yeah, we we're making a lot of progress now because we've suddenly realised that we can actually reason about. It used to be thought that you could only reason about, um, you know, formally, mathematically, improve things about sort of high level programs. Uh, you know, machine code was too dirty, pointers were difficult, uh, and we've made a lot of progress now. So I'm just going straight down to the bottom and uh, and trying to trying to do machine check proofs about about real machine code programs with pointers and first class code and all that kind of thing. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Developer Express. Developer Express crafting first class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. There's an interesting element to this, which is starting the idea that we would push more of these high-level functionalities at the microcode level for the processor. I think you're seeing this in the new generation of uh, graphic processing units that have a lot more sophisticated built-in functionality than the CPUs have, uh, mm -hmm. you know, ever since sort of the risk attack against the the complex processors came along, which is, I guess, subsided again. They, they've been hesitant to put a lot of really complex functionality in the processor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, GP, GPU is certainly a, another big thing that people are interested in around here. Um, and, uh, yeah, we have, a, we have a guy who's very interested in hardware in our group, in fact. Uh, yeah, we cover, we cover all the... Uh, all the levels, um, and yeah, but a, a prerequisite for uh, for being able to compile efficiently to those sorts of things is actually understanding the semantics of the computation you want to perform. And, yeah, what is what does yeah. the net result really look like, and how it good is that? Good being in quotes, the uh, the concept that you would actually build a proof tester to say, all right, well, you know, after all those layers of abstraction, how good is the proof that came out the bottom? Yeah. Yeah, mm. and we're and we're interested. Yeah, we're and we're interested in having a proof that you can check on a machine and really believe, so um, so that you could implement things in a different way. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm kind of keen to do away with user mode and kernel mode, for example. But uh, yeah, that's a that's a pipe dream for the future. So. <laughs> well, you, we've we've done such a good job of hiding the ugliness that is in the machine code level. Mm. that uh, I, you know, we've, we've excused it. There's a lot of advantage for us to eventually clean this up. So having mechanisms that will be able to abstract away from that old back-end functionality that supports ancient modes that nobody uses anymore, mm. we can make better and better processors again. I mean, I, we think we've hit the wall in processors just in terms of making them go faster with the same baggage. Now we've got to get rid of some of that baggage and still get it to perform. Yeah, yeah, I think I think X sixty six will be with us for some time there. <laughs> <laughs> well, T can you tell us a little bit about ML and then SML dot net? Is this something that uh, you think our listeners might be interested in? It's uh, so that goes back a really long way. So, so ML is a, a functional programming language. It's a very popular uh, language in universities. So, uh, 
It's a strongly typed language in which the normal mode of programming is that you uh, uh, you program without uh, mutable state, uh, but with higher order functions and polymorphism and so forth. So, I, I mean, ideas from ML are kind of coming through into C-sharp-like languages, so that it's not so uh, esoteric as it once was. Um, and, uh, yeah, so SML.net is a compiler for standard ML, optimizing compiler standard ML that targets the CLR. That's uh, something we did, oh, a very long time ago. In fact, we announced, we showed off SML.net in an early version at uh, PDC back in 2000. At the yeah, launch when .NET was announced. At the, yeah, that's right, at the launch event for, for .NET. Um, was that the ray tracer that you showed off there? Uh, I can't remember which, which demo we did there, but um, but yeah, there was a, there was a whole bunch of languages that have been um, you know, academic languages and industrial languages that have been targeting the CLR, and we did a we did a session at PDC on that, um, oh, and um, and that's that's pretty cool, and we still we still work on that. So Andrew Kennedy, who also works with us on that, has been uh, making that run faster just recently, um, and that's really cool. So that's um, that's a sort of uh, esoteric academic language. It runs in. Visual Studio, thanks to Claudio, um, and it produces pretty efficient code. Um, thanks, Andrew. That's right. Um, well, I always thought that ML was one of these implementations of lambda calculus-like languages, very, very bare. It's uh, not. No, it's not that bare. No, it's actually. It, it's our favorite programming language. Okay, so yeah. I'm just going to step all <laughs> over. No, it. so <laughs> very Look, right. both it's, guys really like it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of this about. So, so in, in in Cambridge, so we we have we have three different functional language implementations here. So, yeah. so there's SML.NET, which is standard ML. Then there's a there's a very similar language called F# Sharp, which Don Syme has done, which is a, a version of the, the the French version of ML. F# Sharp. And then there's also a, a language called Haskell, which is a, a lazy functional language, which is even more uh, kind of purist and uh, and hair shirt um, than uh, than ML. It's amazingly popular, actually. So that's right, and that's incredibly popular. Yeah, yeah. And so, so yeah, we have three functional languages in our group of fifteen people or whatever. And uh, well, Haskell's also tested for STMs, right? That's right. Yeah. Uh, people are doing you know research on concurrency with functional languages. Okay. Yeah, you got to be in an interesting place when you get a language named after you. So after you. <laughs> so Claudio, what if what's your passion these days at uh at Microsoft Research? Uh well when I'm not deep in the guts of the VB compiler, which uh isn't that exciting. <laughs> um <laughs> what I have been looking at is kind of uh looking at the expressivity of um generics and .NET and comparing it to polymorphism and functional languages. And uh there's kind of lots of Interesting things that you can do with generics that nobody really realized and have just become cutting-edge features of functional languages. But also, the flip side is that there's lots of things you can do in functional languages which are very difficult to express with generics. And so we're kind of investigating that from a more theoretical uh, background. And, and that's actually what led to my implementation of the Joins library, which is curiosity about what you can do with generics. Um, but mostly, uh, I look at programming languages and kind of programming language features. So a bit more practical than that, I suppose. And you did mention that you realized after you got into it that building that joins concurrency library was really an exercise in the potential of generics. Yeah, I mean, I actually worked on generics when with with Andrew and 
it was Andrew Kennedy and Don Syme when when it was coming out. So I did the verifier for generic. So cool. Um, uh, so I knew kind of a lot of features that were in there, but I hadn't really exercised them. There's lots of things you can do that, which I hadn't thought of before. So I was just, I've been working on uh, looking at how to encode type classes, which is this modularity construct that Haskell, functional language Haskell provides. It turns out you can encode them quite naturally in C sharp. I mean, you wouldn't want to do this, but uh, manually, but as a uh, target of a translation, it works quite well. So there's all these things that just kind of happen for free, which is quite nice. It's a it's a fascinating area, and I I don't think we've really gotten a grasp out here in, in the you know business application development world of the potential of generics. And it doesn't surprise me to have a a language investigator, a researcher saying, "Look at this capability! Like it's quite stunning." I'm I'm wondering if we're going to see these kinds of uh, returns in a more uh, uh, business oriented library. I'm trying to think of guy like Rocky Latka applying those principles for uh, CSLA. Hmm. Well, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? The uh, Can we get back to uh, C Omega for a second? Sure. Because, you know, there's all sorts of possible applications for this, and, and a couple come to mind. But um, I'm, I'm trying to find some good samples or some uh, programs that have been done outside Microsoft Research, maybe using C Omega. Can you point to some? Uh, <laughs> well, I think uh, uh, Web TV did something with C Omega, didn't they? They, they, they? I think they did like an EPG, Electronic Program Guide. Oh wow! Using C Omega, but that was internal. I think I'm not sure what happened. There. That was just something I, I knew about. But that, that they were very keen on it. So that Excellent. was actually used doing a real application. Excellent. Are we allowed to talk about that, Nick? I don't know. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure. I, 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 yes, I forget. There was, yeah, there were some other people who tried the data stuff, weren't there? Um, I don't know about. So, exter- I mean, externally, I think the, the, yeah, the main influence of this. I mean, people don't go out and build, uh, uh, build real um, projects on things that we put out because we're no. researchers. Um, so, uh, so normally the influence tends to be that people take the ideas and build it into their own languages or their own system, which has been the yeah. Has been the main take up of well, this. Well, you know, I'm hoping that maybe you just need a little PR. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you, you went on a talk show or something about it, it might might help. Yeah, talk <laughs> some sort of podcast, maybe. Had <laughs> a great idea. Uh, yeah, it's always difficult as researchers because you you don't actually you're never quite sure whether you really really want lots of All the attention. <laughs> well, not the attention. The attention's good, but the uh, but having lots and lots of people using your using your prototypes just means kind of you know lots yeah. of support headache. Um, so uh, I mean, it's a good and a bad thing about research. We, we often kind of we build these artifacts, we we put them out there, people kind of play with them for a bit and decide they like them or don't like them, but then we kind of move on to the next one. Um, and it's an awful lot of effort for things that uh, that don't really have any. Uh, any serious long-term life, but uh, but it's it's the only way to get the experience that you. Well, need they to. could, and I mean, uh, you know, somebody if somebody in the in the public eye took it and did something really brilliant with it, um, you know, they get some. Oh, that'd be great. So you hear me, Jamal? <laughs> <laughs> Jamal Lowy, yes, I'm talking to you. Download this and write something cool, man. Yeah, blow our minds. Blow our minds. And there's obviously a clear progression here. I mean, you had. You had C Omega at the beginning, and and Polyphonic C Sharp sort of pulled out of that, and now the the con- the joints concurrency library is the latest incarnation of these thoughts. And I, I think in the 
library, you've got a really rather non-threatening form. I'm not altering that's Studio right. to do this. That's right. That's a lot. That's a lot easier for people to pick up and play yeah. with than than saying, yeah, yeah, we've got this, we've got this compiler that runs in Visual Studio and it's a completely new language, and you know, it's it's it's, it's much easier to just take the library and, and link it in with your with your current project if you're interested in this style of programming. I mean, it's just a library. Don't be afraid. Yeah, right. that's right. Yeah, yeah. People should people should definitely play with that. Yeah. But uh, you know, you shouldn't get the wrong message though. I mean, it's much better to have the concurrency constructs in the language because a compiler can do a lot more. Yeah. With them to optimize them, right? Right. But as just you know, to play with and to to you know get a feel for what you can do and what you can't do, it's I think it's useful having it as a library. Huh. Um. Let's get back to the asynchronous issues, uh, the concurrency issues for a little bit, uh, and talk about some other things that are related, like transactional memory, for example. Mm-hmm. What is that? Okay, so so we have lots and lots of research on concurrency going on here. So there's, there's, there's three kinds of things. So one is the join stuff, um, which is, it's really good. It's, the join stuff is it's very lightweight. It's very cheap. It's something that you can easily build your own concurrency constructs with it's a you know they're useful little pieces um and stm is a, a much more radical approach to controlling concurrency which is much at a much higher level um and there the basic idea is um instead of all this messing around with locks what the programmer really wants to be able to say is i want this chunk of code to execute atomically right. i want yeah you know, i don't want anything to interfere with this i want the behavior of my program to be uh, whatever whatever scheduling happens, as if you know this this block happened and then the other stuff happened. Right. Uh, and there are various ways that you can implement this abstraction, but the uh, the easiest is to take the idea from from databases of transactions. And so you mark a block of code as atomic, and you say, I want this to happen, you know, kind of all at once. Right. The rest of the program should see this, you know, either before this block is executed or afterwards. And you implement it, uh, or one way you can implement it is when you enter one of these atomic blocks, you start doing any modifications to mutable store on a shadow copy. Ah. And you use some incredibly clever, cunning, lock-free algorithms under the hood so that you you operate on your own kind of private copy of the data. And then when the transaction ends, when you leave the atomic block, you can see whether any other thread stomped on any of the bits of store that you read along the way, read or wrote along the ah. way. And if they didn't, then you know you didn't interfere with them and you can commit your changes back to the main memory. And if somebody else did conflict with you, then, well, there are lots of complicated things you can do, but the simplest thing you can do is you, you throw away your transaction and you start again at the beginning. So you roll it back, you wait for you roll a it back couple and you of again. nanoseconds yeah. and you try it again. That's right. So if you're under, low, if you're under relatively low contention, uh, this is a fairly rare event, uh, right. so it's 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 reasonably optimistic, and it it's it performs terribly well uh, on a whole bunch of things. No, uh, no, wait a minute. Is terribly meaning bad or terribly no, no, well? No, meaning no, no, very, very good, very good, very good. I mean, if you, <laughs> uh, if you take kind of if you if you try and I mean, if you try and do you know fine grained locking on some some big data structure with lots of processors banging on it, yeah. then. Uh, it's an absolute nightmare to program. The performance is still pretty terrible because yeah. uh, you're being very pessimistic. You're taking lots and lots of locks all over the place. Um, with STM, uh, you know, the, the common case is that you don't have contention. And um, 
and you're only taking a small factor slowdown for that. Right, um, you know, something it, will stomp on it one in a million times or something like right, that. That's right, that's um, right. So, I mean, this is one of the most active areas of research in programming languages and operating systems at the minute. I mean, it's, a, it's an old idea, going back to database work from yonks ago, uh, but there's a lot of people who think, you know, this is the closest thing to a silver bullet for concurrency that we've got at the minute. Um, and that's terribly exciting. Well, I've shrinksterized the link to uh, the Microsoft Research uh, homepage on STM, uh, Software yeah, yeah. Transaction Memory. Yeah, look that up, yeah. At shrinkster.com slash O-N-P, O-Nancy P. Okay, yeah, that's good. But that's, that's kind of, so, so that's one of the things that's hard to do in transactional memory is the sorts of things that we do with event-based programming in Polyphonic C Sharp, though. Because, of course, if you're sending messages to another machine, that's something that's really difficult to roll back. <laughs> ah, so so yeah. it's really, really good for the isolation side of things, and it's not clear yet how to, to make that work very well with, um, with event-based uh, programming. So we need some kind of mix of, of both, really. Right. But, yeah, you should definitely get someone on to talk about STM because it's extremely exciting. Very cool, very cool. I think, uh, as I was saying on the phone before, I think we talked to Joel Pobar about that a little bit a long time ago. Yeah, it was back in 2005 was the last time uh, that topic even came up. And obviously, there's been a lot of progress made around this, that there's now downloads you can actually Yeah, I don't, think we, had, with it. I don't think we had any downloads back then. And I see that it was published in June 2005, so it might have been right around the corner. Yeah, yeah. Well, cool. yeah, there's lots and lots of papers from here and elsewhere on that. So, yeah, Tim Harris is your man. So what else is uh, cool at Microsoft Research Land? What's cool at Microsoft Research Land? Well, oh, gosh, everything is cool here. Um, we, have, <laughs> we, have, we have Who should more... we get on the show next, I guess? I'm Who asking. should you get on the show next? <laughs> I don't know. There's, everybody here is cool. So, so, I mean, just in our group, we've got, so, so, uh, we've got Luca Cardelli, who leads the group, is using... Uh, process calculus ideas, the same kind of ideas that we were talking about for, for polyphonic C-sharp, but he's taking these, these mathematical uh, uh, calculi for, for, for modeling concurrent systems and applying them to biology, hmm. which is really exciting. So nothing to do with programming languages, but you take the, the kind of calculi that uh, programming language people came up with and you use those to model uh, real biological systems. So think, things happening inside biological cells, for example, actually have wow. a language for working on that, which is pretty exciting. Um, we've got uh, people in the machine learning group teaching computers to play Go, um, doing <laughs> amazing things with image processing, doing stuff on the Xbox Live service. Um, <clears throat> we've got, um, what else have we got that's exceptionally cool? We've got people in the computer-mediated living department building some extremely cool gadgets, but you would have to have video for that, I think. There was something, Richard, that uh, you saw out at Microsoft Research where they were actually cleaning up audio. Mm -hmm. uh, oh yeah, there was a whole section on uh, on autom the same way that we have automatic red eye removal on photographs. Mm -hmm. This was code to clean up uh, the bits and pieces uh, of uh, anomalous sound in a podcast. It was it was pretty cool, yeah, like ums and ahs. And I thought, okay, Richard, we're out of business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they do some, they do some very good stuff on on processing video and audio using the the machine learning techniques. Those are those are very good. If if, if you look in. Uh, Digital Image Studio has a has a thing for removing objects and filling in the background that was uh, based on some of the machine learning work. Um, they use amazingly advanced statistics so that you can uh, can kind of you know, remove things from your picture and and, the, and it, it works out how to fill in the background. Um, awesome. 
Well, is there any uh, last-minute thing, uh, or plug, or shout-out that you want to do? Holler back? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry? <laughs> Not very British. <laughs> no, I think we're done now. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, next time we're in Cambridge, we'll look you up and have a pint. Yeah, do that thing. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thanks a lot, guys, for being on the show. All right, thank you. Thanks a lot. Good talking to you. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 